Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Gene Thomas, who's USAID Mission Director in Peru and has had a really interesting career in global development. He's been with AID for 22 years, serving both in Washington and abroad. Throughout his career, Mr. Thomas has specialized in issues relating to democracy, governance, and human rights. Gene, thanks for joining us today. Hi, good day. It's not like nothing's going on in Peru right now. Where are you today? I'm in Lima. I'm sitting here on the coast of uh, the city here, looking out at the Pacific Ocean, but uh, basically been in lockdown for, I think, 82 days now. So I haven't left my house except to go to the grocery store and to the pharmacy, which is basically once a week for the last over 11 weeks. But who's counting? 82 days, but who's counting? (laughs) I've got my calendar and I mark it every day. And I'm always going like, I never thought we would get past 40. Like they said, you know, maybe six weeks, but here we are. I have a visual of of you doing like those four sticks and then a fifth one crossed through. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, it's right on my wall in my kitchen. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you doing this. I want to get into what's happening in Peru vis-a-vis COVID and in global development and your current global development But Gene, let's first start with, how did you get into this business? Well, you know, as a young kid um, growing up, I really just wanted to see the world. I'd read a lot. I was a big reader and studied like world history. And I don't know, I just had a dream of going out and seeing everything. And so I didn't know how I'd do that. But once I went off to college at the University of Texas, I started meeting uh, returned Peace Corps volunteers. And I ended up joining the Peace Corps in 1989. And I went to uh, Mali, West Africa. And I was the happiest person in the world. So that's how I got I got hooked. And basically, I haven't returned home home to Texas to live. I've been overseas most of that time, but I have done a couple of tours in Washington. That's now over 30 years. A long time. Very long time. It's kind of hard to believe. You're a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali. Yes, Mali, West Africa. Yeah, I was a water volunteer. And, and, and what was that like? Wow, it was like I landed in a National Geographic episode. It was completely different than anything that a, you know, Texas boy from Austin would have ever seen in his life. And what I took away from that was that you don't need possessions and money to be happy because I was living in a village where people really had like two changes of clothes, a couple of pots, a radio, and they were some of the happiest people I'd ever met in my life. And it just kind of sealed the interest that I had to like go and meet more people and, and travel the world. And that's what I've done. That's amazing. And then did you go from the Peace Corps to AID right away? No, I I actually uh, ended up back in Washington, worked for the EPA for a while, worked on my master's at the University of Maryland. And then I uh, went back overseas with my I had an environment career before, before becoming a democracy officer with USAID. It was just kind of like a weird segue. But, you know, that's how careers and life are. I ended up uh, in Germany and then Mexico. And in Mexico, I got a job with USAID and began my 20, it's actually like 22, 23 years now I'm going on with aid. And since then, I've been in Afghanistan, Colombia. After Colombia, I went to Pakistan, and then I came back to uh, Washington, and I headed our Caribbean office, so I covered all of our our posts in the Caribbean. 
And then I was selected to be the mission director to Haiti. And so I was there for the last three and a half years and then arrived here in Peru in August. So I've had mostly a Latin America career, which was never something that I even imagined. I learned Spanish, you know, after Peace Corps. I was a French speaker in college and in Peace Corps. And so it's been this kind of wild around the world, 12 different countries in 30 years. It's been a great experience. I mean, I think about Haiti's the poorest country on the Western Hemisphere and in some ways has comparable challenges to parts of West Africa, Francophone West Africa. How would you compare Haiti to, say, a country like Mali? It's very similar. I mean, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues with very low levels of literacy, uh, low access to basic health care and low economic opportunities. So it's very similar to West Africa. That's a good uh, point. I always say that Haiti actually is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's really in a different neighborhood. And uh, there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Very complicated recent history, especially the last 30 years. Uh, but the economy really hasn't grown in 30 years. It's really unfortunate. It's a lot to do with political instability because they've never really been able to hit their stride, even though they've actually gone through a political transition a couple of times since the end of the Devalier era, it really hasn't stabilized. And it's a challenge. It's very unfortunate. I mean, you're, you've had a governance, democracy rights and governance career at aid. I've been to Haiti once and I, I wrote a piece in Forbes about my visit. And I don't purport to, you know, have any expertise. It's a very complex and interesting country with a complex and important history. But my simplistic takeaway is that a lot of the problem of Haiti is a problem of governance and politics. You're talking about political instability. It seems to me, could we get all of the political stakeholders in Haiti in a room and cut some kind of grand bargain or I don't know, some kind of, there's never, I guess there's never been a consensual grand bargain in the political class of Haiti. You know, what I think is underlying all of it is that there's not enough middle class with enough education and enough political wherewithal to demand change. And so you end up with a very sort of tenuous situation with a few elites that dominate. They're not all bad people, but they definitely dominate the economy. And then a division between them and the political elites, which are not necessarily part of that economic strata, the higher strata. And so they don't necessarily fully agree and they play off of, I guess there's a lot of manipulation of the political process for economic interests. So what I would say is, you know, the countries that are more stable tend to be places with a larger middle class that demand um, security, economic opportunity, better education, better public services. And the lack of economic growth there is really, I think, what is underlying all of the instability. Middle class people change the world. It's, it's what we need in order to create a stable democracy. And so what we were really investing a lot in was trying to get more private sector resources in to grow businesses. And that's challenging considering everything they've been going through lately. You know, I love that statement, middle-class people change the world. That is an awesome statement. And I actually think we ought to do something at CSIS. If you look at global development in the last 40 years, I mean, my bumper sticker is it's not your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, more capable with more agency and more options. Look, there's lots of problems. There's been Gini coefficients have gone up in terms of more inequality in, in some countries. But there has been the emergence of a middle class tenuously in parts of Latin America. Africa, you could technically argue there's a significant middle class, depending on how you quantify what you call a middle class, is as big as 350 million people out of a billion people. That's kind of a maso menos number because, you know, what does middle class mean in Mali? I mean, is, is an interesting conversation. But I totally agree with you. That is a really interesting statement. And I'm in the business of listening for smart stuff. 
that's a good one, Gene. I'm buying that one, which is middle class people change the world. Me encantó, as they say in Argentina. Me encantó. That is really good. We had a uh, anti-corruption expert in Mexico back when uh, I was there in the 90s who talked about this and the history of how middle class people had changed the world. And one example he would give was Great Britain in the early uh, 19th century. And it was all the tradesmen, the craftsmen, the people who were like middle class that they rose up out of the peasant class and they basically said, well, I want a better standard of living for my family. My kids need, you know, better school and we need health care, et cetera, et cetera. And they began to demand. He said Great Britain was one of the most corrupt countries in the world at the time. And uh, we don't see it that way, you know, anymore. I mean, that is not the image of Great Britain that we know from the 20th century, but it's because of the middle class. They changed it. That's they amazing. changed their world. So you're in Peru. Peru is a really interesting country. My theory of change is there's two categories of the 100 or so developing countries. There's 30 to 40 fragile or failing states. And then there's about 60 to 70 countries that are going to make it. And I put Peru at the front of the class of countries that are going to make it. So tell me about, but this is BC before COVID. You showed up in August and between say, August and December 15th, before any of this happened, then we'll talk about this. What did you find when you got to Peru, having been in the biz for a long time, being maybe a DRG officer, an environment officer? What did you find? Well, I found that the capacity here is amazing and that the country was really leading its own development. That really, I often think, you know, we're still here for a good reason. We've got strategic partnership across key areas, the environment, the Amazon, of course, which is such a a global good that the U.S. government is very interested in its conservation, counter-narcotics because of the drug trade and, and international criminal uh, activity. So, you know, we have that. And really, I would say those two big reasons are why we are here still, because it's in our interest to be partners with Peru. But Peru is leading this process at this point. I mean, 20 years on, our resources in both of these areas are far exceeded by government of Peru resources and capacity, which a lot of which we've been directly involved in building, both technical and um, legal policy capacity. And so the country really is on the right path. I mean, COVID is a whole detour for every country in the world, but Peru's had great resources that they have built up because their economy has been growing. Um, they've been investing billions in taking care of the um, lower economic class of the country. I think something like five or six million people have received our families and households, which benefit at least four people each. So we're talking a country of 30 million people. They've made payments to over 20 million people in this country through those five million deposits of uh, money to enable the lower economic class of the country to quarantine because the country's still 70% informal. The one criticism I would have off the top of my head is that Peru's been too dependent on export of minerals. There's a, a lot of different minerals that are key to the growth over the last 20 years of the country, and they haven't developed enough sort of a broader economic base that would reduce the informality, which is where they're really fragile. And so it's not a fragile state, it's not a fragile, but that, that's where their fragility is or their weaknesses is that there's too many people in the informal sector. And that's really come to the fore in COVID because those folks cannot quarantine easily because they, they live day to day by selling things in markets, for example. They have to go out to work. And so uh, Peru's been able to manage that to a point, but it hasn't been fully effective because of that large underclass. 
tell me about if I say the word Amazon and Peru, can you word associate with me? Like the second largest portion of the Amazon is in Peru. I didn't know that. 60% of the country is Amazon forest. And so you have the Andean Ridge, you have the coastal desert, the Andean Ridge, and then everything is Amazon. I've been to Lima a couple times, but that's it. I would have said 10% of the land is Amazon, no, not 60%. I'm pretty 60%. sure it's about more than half. It's, it's about 60% of the country is, is Amazon. And we've had a big role in helping them establish their forestry code and building the regional forestry um, agencies. The country's decentralized so that the actual enforcement of the forestry law is at the regional level, which is their state's. And so we've been working with them for two decades or more to bring up the capacity of the country to manage its resources better and manage them legally and transparently. And that's a big factor in the U.S. free trade agreement with Peru is that they have to do a better job of reducing the illegal timber because it impacts the capacity of and the, the functioning of the Amazon biome as a whole which is, has a global impact on the climate, as, as we are all f pretty fairly aware. We've done two things. My colleague, Romina Bandura, is a senior fellow, is doing a big project on the intersection of security issues and development in the Amazon basin. Three country case studies, Brazil, Peru, Colombia. She met with some of your colleagues. We're gonna be rolling out a case study and publishing a big report on this in September. We're also done a lot of work. My colleague Moises Rendon, who runs our Future of the Venezuela Initiative, has done a really interesting exercise on illegal mining in Venezuela, which is you just described. I mean, this illegal mining thing is not just a problem in Venezuela. It's a problem in Peru. It's in Colombia. And so I think getting a handle on this is really important, both for environmental reasons, for corruption. It, it, it attracts all sorts of bad stuff. Well, this, illegal, this illegal mining, mining now thing. exceeds um, narcotics trade in uh, Peru. It's two to three times as much in value, the resources that are that are moving as a result of illegal gold mining. That's shocking to me. Yeah, it's it's also almost impossible to trace gold. The DEA and I, mean, I guess it's basically the DEA research labs are able to trace the genetic traits of, of cocaine to the soils that it's grown in. So they can tell you if it came from Colombia or Peru or the regions. Gold can't be traced, so it's really easy to launder it. It's heavy, so I guess there's a lot of complications with that, but it's, it's not traceable um, in that it immediately looks just like any other bar of gold or any other size of gold that they traffic. So it's a real problem. And it's been a growing issue here, especially in the, the border region with Bolivia and uh, the southern eastern part of the country in Madre de Dios. It's been a real issue and it's just devastating to fly over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square kilometers that have been eviscerated, basically. They've cut all the trees down, they've destroyed the riverbeds, and it's just like a apocalyptic what what happens as a result of illegal mining that's amazing well this is all bc this was all before covid gene okay so we're all walking along minding our own business around thanksgiving or the holidays and at some point in q1 of 2020 we all start seeing dark clouds gather what has covid meant for peru covid has meant for peru that the economy for two months basically stopped and everybody was locked down there's some indication that illegal mining probably was going on to some extent, but it was even that was reduced. We've also seen a drop in the price of, of coca 
because the trafficking routes were shut down. I mean, the government did an excellent job of uh, making sure the quarantine was in place. And that's also been one of the reasons that they've had so many articles about why are the infection levels still going up? And there's a lot of debate about that. But the country has done a great job. But it, like everywhere, it has a it has a negative impact on the economy. So we're we're starting to see a little bit of opening on uh, in that regard. But what we're finding is, for example, it, we work a lot with farmers who are part of the post coca alternative livelihoods component of our um, counter-narcotic strategy with the government of Peru, which has been very successful, where we do we do eradication, enforcement, and alternative development all together. Those three components add up to a very successful track record, eliminating coca production and, and maintaining it at levels greater than 90% of the areas where we've implemented those programs. We've been successful in eliminating future or, or recidivism or return to, to coca production. What we're seeing is a lot of those farmers who are primarily in the coke, in the cacao and coffee sectors are really hurting because they've had difficulty getting their products to market. And so that's one of the things that we're starting to work on is how we can reactivate the farming activity in order to continue to, to allow these farmers who have left behind, you know, this illicit life with the coca production to not have to backslide into, you know, whatever. That's been one of our biggest concerns is how do we get these farmers back on track? And so we're starting to, we primarily work through credit. We work with a lot of microcredit institutions, but we're actually starting to look at some emergency grants. And so that's shifting how we're doing programming in the near term. It's not as sustainable, obviously, as uh, building a financial portfolio with a microcredit institute, which, you know, helps educate farmers about how they can grow their businesses by utilizing and accessing credit in a smart and responsible way. Um, grants tend to create dependency, and that's not something that we consider a sustainable approach, obviously. But in the time of COVID, you have to take drastic measures to uh, ensure that programs can get back on track. And so the country's actually opening up now, though, across the board economically. It's at about 50% level of activity of pre-COVID. And so... Um, you know, we're optimistic that the markets are going to start to function and people will start to be able to export our, at greater levels because coffee was never cut off completely because it's a food product. It's in that category. Um, so it was an essential product. But getting around the country has been almost impossible. I mean, it's been really difficult to move people. Merchandise has been flowing. But we're trying to help everybody get back into the groove and get the markets running again. If I think about telework and teleschooling, are those both things that you're seeing in Peru? So because of the inequity, there's a going back to kind of the middle class, if you look at the, the 30% of the economy is formal and 70% is informal, it tells you that though the middle class has grown, and I would guess, you know, that the percentage is roughly along those lines, you know, you've got about a third of the country that can probably do some kind of telework or teleschool, but then you've got this big percentage, and I would say it's the majority that doesn't have trustworthy or uh, reliable, we say, access to the internet, and they don't have the equipment for their kids to go to school through teleschool. And so it's been a real problem for the country. I mean, it's a problem in poor areas of the United States. We know that, and that there's dark spots everywhere on the, of the, for access to the internet. In Peru, it's a much bigger problem. Outside of Lima, definitely it's a problem. And the government is putting a lot of resources into that, uh, both buying tablets, extending the internet, 
This is something we've been doing in the Amazon to support our entrepreneurs because of lack of uh, internet access, which is key to, to successful small businesses. But yeah, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge here. Uh, but again, I have to commend the government because they've been bringing to bear great resources. And I'm talking, you know, billions for economic reactivation and support to families. But they're also investing that in education. But it, they've got a long way to go. So we thought, Gene, about BC before COVID and maybe after, you know, let's say three years from now, God willing, much sooner than that, this COVID is way in the rearview mirror. You wanted to see a more diversified economy of Peru. Let's say if we were having this conversation around November, what would be the sectors you'd be betting on in terms of helping diversify the economy of Peru away from minerals? Well, our focus is on non-wood products or non-timber products in the Amazon. Uh, that's one sector that they have. It's one of the most biologically diverse countries in the world. So they have great resources that they haven't tapped into yet uh, in essential oils, in potential medical uh, discoveries, in uh, tropical fruits, and many other things. And an example of that is that there's a big market for essential oils for natural products with companies like Natura. We're looking at how to connect the non-timber forest products to the global market. That's one aspect of how Peru can play to its advantage. They can also continue to enforce their forestry laws and ensure that there's responsible management of the timber industry. Because right now, there's almost no wood exportation to the U.S. because of the restrictions on our U.S. free trade agreement, which limit the ability it, without traceability, which is something we're working on. The Peruvians can't export their wood products to the United States. And so that's another one that they they have great resources that can be managed responsibly, reducing and eliminating deforestation at the same time that they actually exploit wood and lumber but it has to be done in a transparent and traceable way in order for it to be connected to markets like the United States or Europe, where we have really high standards on the import of wood products because they have to be, they have to be able to prove that they were harvested in a sustainable way. Go to the Amazon. That's what I would say. Develop more of the Amazon in a sustainable manner. And uh, that'll definitely, you know, add great value uh, to the country. Tell me about the creative economy. We're doing a series of things on the creative economy, and I just keep thinking that there's a, a really interesting indigenous culture in Peru. Uh, they're known for their cooking. They're known for their art. Talk a little bit about what role is the creative economy going to play in well, Peru's future? Before COVID, this was definitely one of the like culinary destinations of the world. Um, the food here is amazing. The chefs here are amazing. And that has been a real growth sector for the Peruvians connected into tourism. People come to Peru very often to go to Machu Picchu and to see the various cultural sites. But in the past, they would just fly through Lima and connect off to Cusco. Over the last 15 years, there's been a dramatic growth in the culinary sector. And very often, two or more of the restaurants here are listed in the top 10 in the world. And so now Lima is a, a culinary destination that combines really well with all these cultural sites. So there's a huge market that they've lost because obviously if the borders are all closed and we're in the COVID era, no travel is happening um, even within the country. So there's a lot of opportunity to go back and, and rebuild that culinary sector. 
On the creative side, um, I don't really know that much about traditional arts and culture to really get into that, but but I would like to like kind of talk about the opportunities to work in high tech. There's a lot of young people who are are pushing on that side to grow capacity, coding and IT skills and building the capacity of young Peruvians to really engage in that aspect of the global economy. And I think that that's really an area that they have not by any means fully exploited, that there's a lot of potential on the high tech side to to have back offices for companies here in Peru with coders, software designers, uh, video game designers, whatever all those skills feed into. I really think that's something that Peru has a lot of opportunities in that regard. And we've been supporting them through WGDP has some grants here that are doing some amazing work with training young women to be coders. And uh, wow. it's really exciting. Some really, really fantastic um, examples of how you can diversify skill sets and broaden the participation and bringing young women in and having them break into a very male dominated uh, industry globally and especially in Peru. So I really have to commend that program for the work that they're doing here. That's amazing. Well, look, Gene, you've been really generous with your time. I know you're really busy. It's a real pleasure to have you on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. This is great. I know you're really busy. Thanks for your public service. And you'll be hearing from us. Thanks a lot, Gene. Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to continuing to, to chat about some of these ideas. And we're very interested in your work here, especially with the Amazon and other studies that you've been doing in Peru. Well, look, stay safe and thanks for the time. And I'll, I'll see you soon. OK, take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 